You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to The Long Form Podcast, a special episode of The Long Form Podcast. This episode is going to have no uh, rambly intro, except for what I'm doing right now. We are not going to have any sponsors. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to go. Uh, Our guest is not a guest. It is a host. Evan Ratliff, who you know from uh, this podcast, wrote a story, and it came out today. And we figure that since um, we do this podcast about stories and long stories and Evan had done one and it's our fucking podcast that we just talk about Evan's story (laughs) because it's for sale and you should buy it that's the point of us talking right now is that you should go and buy the story I guess that's the point does that mean we're done yeah that's it and this podcast is exactly one minute long Um, there is one other thing though about there's like one hitch in this plan which was we decided to do this and uh, I was like, yeah, we'll just do like a short one. And then I read the story. And now I don't know how you let me agree to say that we were going to do a short one because I don't know how you're going to explain, just like summarize the story in anything less than like 45 minutes. It's true. I, I've actually been summarizing this story for like years to different people and I still can't do it in less than like a 20 minute conversation <laughs> just on its own. All right, we'll try. Try and give the like, try and give the short synopsis of this story. Okay, so the story... What's the story Well, if we're going to tell people to buy it, we should tell what it's called. Yeah. Um, It's called The Oil Man's Daughter, um, and it's in The Atavist. And uh, it's it's a little weird about publishing in The Atavist because I don't want people to feel like it's somehow vanity publishing. (laughs) You Uh, self-published this story, huh? Yeah, I I self-published the story, essentially. Um, There's been been some pretty great, like, lines around the office where people keep being like, yeah, I'm editing my boss's story, or, like, I have to record my boss reading his story. (laughs) Uh, Everyone loves it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's great to hear. Everyone's just been talking about how great it is. No, I did. did, It was uh, very well edited by Charlie Homans in our office, so, and I, I had told him, like, don't go easy on it because it needs it, and it did. So, um, so I, I don't feel like I got the the gentle treatment necessarily. Uh, but what is the story about? So, um, the story is about a woman named Judith Wright Patterson. Um, she lives in Missouri, and she was born in 1956. And in the late 80s, 1989, uh, she was contacted by her birth mother. So she had been adopted. 
she knew she was adopted. She knew her adoptive parents had gotten her when she was a baby, uh, but she didn't know who her birth parents were. So her birth mother, whose name is Louise, uh, got in touch with her and said, you are the daughter of a guy named M.A. Wright, who was at one time the chairman and CEO of Exxon uh, in the 70s. So she said, basically, you're the illegitimate long lost daughter of this famous rich oil man from Texas. And Judith then has essentially spent the last 20, more than 20 years since then, uh, trying to prove this fact. And then the story got really weird because M.A. Wright died in the 90s and she had had some contact with him and then she sort of tried to get in on his estate. And in the process of trying to uh, show that she was his daughter, she discovered that her birth mother's family had perhaps been uh, getting money from him for her entire life. And at least according to her, uh, stole it all. Okay. So that was like a two, that was pretty good. That was like two and a half minutes. I assume for most people following along that they got lost somewhere in there. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> this shit is totally insane. Like I, I just uh, read it and it, it, you know, it's pretty windy. It's pretty windy. And I don't want to like, uh, you know, spoil the thing, but there's a moment in the story where I wondered whether or not you wished you had ever like picked up the phone. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I guess I should say like I've been, I've been working on the story, although working is probably a very loosely applied term for five years. So I found out about it five years ago and there have been many different times when I thought, okay, now, now I'm going to write this story and I just couldn't do it. I, I couldn't figure out how, to get a grip on, I mean, even the capsule that I just said, like, it's hard to figure out how you tell that story. And that's like uh, the story minus like 15 twists. Right. That's that's minus all of the ins and outs of what happened. But the probably the bigger problem was it's almost impossible to prove what's true in this particular story. So I just kept running up against the idea that, oh, okay, I'll just find like, I'll make one call or I'll like find the person who will say, either this whole thing is true or this whole thing is not true. And I never did. And in fact, I realized that the more people I called, the further I was getting from actually like trying to figure out what really happened because everyone had a different story, basically. So when you find yourself in that situation, you've been working on something for years, you have, a, as much as you have tried to avoid it, you have a relationship with the protagonist. Everywhere you're going sort of like, opens more doors and it you feel like you're getting further away from the truth or further away from something that could ever be like concise and finished like how do you like when do you cry uncle how when do you're like all right now's the time like I, I, I enough like I'm gonna put it down in the in the way that I know it right now I think well I mean for a long time I actually was gonna drop it uh and I I came close to dropping it a lot of different times, or I mean, basically I did drop it. Like I would stop dealing with it for a long time. And, and part of that was, and this is in the story, so it's not like I'm giving something away that's, I wouldn't have revealed in the story, but basically Judith, the main character of the story would just call me all the time. And so she wanted to get her story out. So I became this kind of like, she viewed me as sort of an advocate for her proving that this thing was true. And I didn't know what to do with that. So after a while, I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it anymore. So I just, I stopped talking to her for a while and then I would start talking to her again and then I would go out there and visit her and then I would 
not talk to her for a while. And then it finally got to the point, I mean, partly she, I think she was trying to get other publicity for it at this point. And so- Get other I, publicity for it, like she'd given up on you? Kind of. I mean, it'd been a long time since she thought that I was going to publish something. So I don't know if she would have gotten other publicity for it, but it, I did put the idea in my head that after all this time, if I don't actually publish this story and someone else does, I will just I'll feel like the biggest fucking idiot ever. I'll just be like, <laughs> I have literally thousands of pages of documents sitting like on my desk at work and at home. And like to do all that and then to not publish anything would just be like, I could never live with that, I don't think. <laughs> so it's mostly just out of fear that someone else would do it. Yeah, and kind of like shame, <laughs> fear and shame. Um, but it was also, in some ways, it's it was shame that kept me from writing it too because even in the final version, I mean, I basically tried to write about the process of it as well um, because... I felt kind of embarrassed that I couldn't find the answer that I didn't, you know, I always felt like, well, I didn't make enough calls or I, I should have found the right person or, and I didn't work hard enough on it or something or else I would have the definitive answer. Like, this is what happened there. I mean, there were two things that were kind of like instructive or, or, or I remembered while I was reading it. And one is that like, that's actually a criticism that you have leveled to me about like several stories, which is like, it was amazing, but they didn't, totally nail the final thing like I wish he just solved it or just like I'm not quite sure which is like in hindsight like was maybe weighing on you but the other thing is that you've asked a lot of people on this podcast and this is where like our (laughs) weird experiment here gets kind of meta but you've asked a lot of people on the podcast about the decision to put themselves into stories and did you even make an attempt to do this without putting yourself in the story I don't know how you would have done it no I never wrote it I never wrote it without me in it and I mean, actually, like I, I ask people about that all the time because I'm, I'm really interested in how they decide and what their choices are. But I, I, I do a lot of times. Like I, I actually like to, to put myself in there somewhere, just because, I feel like it, uh, it, it just kind of like gives the reader some sense that like this is one person's version of the story, um, even if it's not in a big way, like a real biographical way. But this one, I went like way over the top with it, partly because the way that I wrote it was informed a lot by the fact that I've told, I mean, I must've told a hundred people this story over the last five years. Right. And they always ask a certain set of questions. One of which is how, how the fuck did you find out about this? And the way I found out about it is like kind of lame, but also like kind of funny. So I just figured, well, I'll just put that in there and make, turn that into part of the story as well. Well, explain how you, how you found the story. Cause I, it's certainly the first time I've ever read that in like the lead of a story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> the way I found out about it was um, I have an agent, literary agent, um, who, as I say in the story, is sort of like my agent in name only. Uh, he kind of like lets me say that he's my agent, even though I haven't published a book in like going on 10 years. Um, and that book didn't sell. Evan's, I, Evan's book will be in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I co-wrote that book. I actually didn't even write that book myself. But anyway, he's great. Um, his name's David Kuhn, although I didn't name him in the story. Um, and he also represented Dominic Dunn, uh, writer for Vanity Fair and sometime television personality. And uh, the character in the story, Judith Wright Patterson, called David because she found out that he represented Dominic Dunn somehow on the Internet or something and said, you know, I have a story that Dominic Dunn should tell for Vanity Fair magazine. And uh, and he was kind of like, hey, he's writing a novel. He's busy and 
also like Dominic Dunn probably hears like a story like this or did, you know, every day. So then I was having lunch with him. He told me this crazy woman called me. I said, ah, actually, that sounds pretty interesting. And then he gave me your number. And that was that was the call that I like sometimes regretted that I had ever made. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean that honestly. Like, <laughs> do you kind of wish you had never embarked on it? You've been working on the story for five years. And it sounds like you have some sort of like conflicted stuff about the fact that it never got totally solved. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually am really conflicted about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of worries about the story. I mean, I think my regrets will probably be uh, relative to what what happens with it. You know, if someone comes out and says, like, I have the definitive proof that, like, this woman is not this guy's daughter and all you had to do was call me and I could have told you, then I will I'll probably, like, write an, an epilogue to it that will just <laughs> right. capture that. Um, but that would be, you know, I think that would be the outcome that I would most fear. But it's also true that, like, in a weird way, this is a it's a personal story it's it's a personal story of like a family drama. And so uh, I had some worry, worries about like what was appropriate to tell because uh, there's a, there's these whole private lives of these people just spilled out into these documents. Right. And some of them are pretty, had pretty rough I mean, lives. Basically all of it has ended up in like a court document at some point. Yeah. Everything that's known at least. Yeah. And massive, massive long depositions about how the affair happened in the 50s and and it's a great story you know there's all these oil men there and howard <laughs> hughes great. and and howard, too. howard hughes shockingly uh coming off like an asshole yeah yeah although i mean that's a perfect example of the kind of thing the the way the story is fraught though because howard hughes appears in the story and he's kind of like the howard hughes you know you know he's like has a cleanliness issue and she runs it to him he says something uh he says something mean to her and then he's gone and it's on the one hand, uh, it makes sense. Like, it all fits. There's a reason why he would have been in Tulsa in 1955, as best I can tell. But it's also, it's too perfect in some way. Like, right. she was there for three months and she ran into Howard Hughes. Like, it sounds like something that maybe could have been she found, saw in a movie. You know, so it's just, but it's so long ago. You're just fighting against, like, memories that are no longer Right, and almost real. all of the people who know the answer... Are dead. Yeah, the people who really know, uh, the w- woman Louise is still alive, um, although but, wouldn't, but sick, sick, and I couldn't uh, get her to talk, or I couldn't. I mean, she wouldn't come to the door basically. But her doctor was writing notes to the court saying she has dementia. Right. Um, and then that's pretty much it. I mean, of the people who were there, who could say this happened or it didn't happen, it's basically her. I mean, there's pretty good circumstantial evidence that it did happen, but yeah. How did you balance getting this story done with all of the other like shit that you do in your life? Um, by like not you host that you co-host this podcast, <laughs> which takes it so much time. No, I mean like you know I think that um, that's really better. Are you are is what you're doing? You're telling me that I'm not bringing enough guests for the podcast. Is that what you're <laughs> pretty to? fucking obvious that you're not bringing enough guests? No, the thing I'm I'm asking about, which I think is helpful for people is about how you sort of work on and tackle a really long-term project when you've got a bunch of other shit to do every day, Yeah, that, which is really hard. Yeah, I had never done that before, and I have to say, like, people who do that all the time, I, I it's really, really difficult to do a story. I mean, this story is 16,000 words. It's got, as I said, thousands of pages of documents and, and hours and hours of interviews. So... Um, 
you know, I did it over a very long period of time. That was the first thing. So there's no time peg on this thing. So it basically, you know, I could fit it in whenever I had a little bit of time. And then I had to sort of carve out time to go do the in-person reporting that was like vacation time, you know, like right. you, you just can't, I don't think it's feasible to work a full-time job and be able to do this type of reporting because you set us up, okay, I'm going to set aside two hours on Monday and make a bunch of calls and like you get one person and then they start calling you back over the next couple of days and you're doing other things. So um, it really requires like dedicated time. It's to me, that's one of the dilemmas of, of like long form magazine writing is like, it's really done best by staff writers and freelancers who dedicate all of their time to it. I mean, it's a job that you have to be doing all the time. And then the question of like getting paid enough to compensate for that time is the one that like everyone who comes in here to <laughs> right. talk on this podcast deals with in some way or another. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to uh, Molly Young. She's like the only person we've had on who has a full-time job aside from you, who has a full-time job, who, who does this kind of work. And, and, um, I just don't know how you do it. I don't know how, I don't know how to do that. How, how one can do that sustainably. Like I can also say this cause you and I go to the same office every day. Like you've been a frazzled guy for like a week and a half. At least a week and a half. <laughs> I mean, you've been a frazzled guy for years, but you've been like a like this is like a this is a stressful thing you just did. Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's mostly like I didn't do anything else for the last month. Like I spent the last two, probably three weekends. Like one of those weekends after I left the office on Friday, I did not see another person I knew until I got back here on Monday. Like I just <laughs> right. went home and like sat in front of the computer for an entire weekend, and I did that for three weekends. So, yeah, I mean once you get into edits and you know fact checking and all that stuff it's just kind of like it's an overwhelming process and i don't think i was particularly good at fitting it in with my job <laughs> i think i just like didn't sleep much. the answer is just like don't don't really do that yeah i don't know people you see those david remnick stories and you're just like how does he do that i have no idea how he does that but i read that he like gets up at 6 a.m and writes like five thousand words or some ridiculous thing so you know, that's a, that's a skill that I don't have. Answer is don't do it or be Remnick. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that people know this, but maybe they don't. Like uh, before you started The Atavist, you wrote these kinds of stories a lot. And did it, uh, did it make you miss doing that? Do you miss doing that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, at least among people I know, it's not like I've ever been quiet about the fact that I... Like I really love writing, and I kind of wish I was writing all the time. Not 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 the actual writing, uh, but the just the whole process of like trying to figure a story like this out and piece it together, and and you know get the right interview, and then you know put it all together into a story. Like I just love that process, so I did miss that process. Um, it has been interesting though because the actual writing part was a lot easier than it usually is. Because really. I think just the the sheer volume of bitching that I have done over the last two years about not having time to write, like no human being, including even me, could like bitch that much and then start bitching about the writing and actually have to do it. <laughs> you know, like it, it just the cognitive dissonance would have been mm, t overwhelming. <laughs> so I actually was kind of like, I love this. I'm this just is great. sitting here all weekend. All I'm doing is I haven't like, seen anyone since words. I left the house on Friday and I won't see anyone till Monday morning. I loved it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a fun process. I mean, I guess the other, <laughs> the other funny thing, so this is a thing that no person on earth cares about but me, but, like, I viewed this story as, like, the third part of a trilogy of stories that I was 
writing because I've been working on the story since before I wrote the story for Wired about disappearing. And then I wrote a story that was published in The New Yorker about uh, a con artist. And they were kind of like three parts of the same question, which is like, what happens to you when you change your identity? And so, I don't know, I guess like I'm so, I was so into it that it was really exciting for me, even though like no, no, no one, no one cares about that except me. But. Have you, uh, have you arrived at any like grand conclusions about how that works? What happens? Well, I think, I feel like in this one, the real, like not to give it away, but like my real kind of like moral, I guess, of the story to use the cliche would be this woman was basically given this opportunity to take on a new identity and it was a mistake. Like she never should have done it. Like if there was a way for her to go back and say like, no, I don't want to know this about, like I want to be who I am. Then I think she should have taken that. Now, whether she necessarily believes that or not, it's not clear. She does say things like that sometimes, but you know, I think that, I'm really fascinated with people who want to shift their identity very radically and it's almost never, it almost never works out well. Right. I have another, I, there was one question that I wanted to ask. So in the story, you kind of like, I don't want, I, it's hard to talk about it without giving it away, but like you talk about not just putting yourself in the story and, and you're reporting the story, but also like you are becoming a character in this like twisted fable, you know? And you have a relationship with Judy. You have a relationship with the protagonist. Do you, how do you think she's going to respond to reading this? Like, part of the reason I, I assume that the writing was easy, aside from like the fact that you can be a hypocrite, was that you had told this story over and over and over again for right. years, right? So you like you've been practicing telling it for a long time. She's been practicing telling it for like twenty years. She tells it to anyone who will listen. This is the first time that someone else is trying to tell the thing in full. How do you think she's going to respond? I honestly don't know. I, I I think sometimes I think that she will just be excited that it's out. I mean, I know she'll be excited that it's out and she'll feel like finally someone has told my story. But I, I'd offer like a level of skepticism about the possibilities that parts of the stories could be not true that I think could be difficult for her. Although... I don't know. I, my my guess is that she'll she'll just be happy to have it out. And I also, you know, there are places where you know I think she was naive about what she thought she was going to accomplish with, for instance, all kinds of lawsuits, and and that her her ideas about what had happened got way out of control. Like an extraordinary thing happened to her, and it kind of unmoored her from what what was true and what's not. So she has a tendency towards sort of conspiracy theory, and so I think. Some of that is in there, and I think, you know, she's never maybe confronted that, that sometimes the things that she says are clearly just, like, not possible or seem ridiculous. So, I don't know. I mean, the other the other thing that actually just comes to mind is, like, when I was trying to write those parts about me becoming a character, like, I read, like, every Janet Malcolm thing <laughs> ever, ever, not ever written, but, like, a particular couple of Janet Malcolm books, and that's another thing I just to add to my things that I'm worried about is like that I'm I don't think I'm great at writing about that sort of thing so I have a feeling that you mean writing about yourself no 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 writing about sort of like the journalistic process and like the relationship between truth and what can be documented and that it's kind of like 
a really, really poor man's Janet Malcolm <laughs> thing that I'm trying to do. Um, but anyway, that's that's not that wasn't a good promotional. Uh, no, well, I mean, but it's actually it's a good like preview because there's a, a lot of the like Evan putting Evan in the story is just Evan like uh, making fun of Evan in the story. <laughs> it's pretty it's like a pretty self-deprecating approach to first person writing. It's just some idiot driving around South, you know, Southwest. <laughs> Walking Missouri. into like appliance stores, getting yelled at. Yeah, I thought that guy was gonna. I thought that guy was gonna do me harm. Comes through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, go buy the story. Oilman's daughter, Atavis.com. We'll be back July 10th. Thanks, Max. Hey, thank you. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.